Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We're going to be approaching Easter a little bit early so that making our way through Matthew, we come to Easter, the, the resurrection on, on Easter Sunday. So this morning we come to the crucifixion, which normally would be, well, Good Friday, but we don't do a Good Friday service. And so I invite you to stand with me as we read about the crucifixion of our Savior. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 50. Then when the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, They gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on his head. When they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he did not want to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down... They began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were blaspheming him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The rest of them were saying, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that your son, the living word, will illuminate our hearts. That he will come into our minds and our thoughts, Father, by the word, by the spirit's power, convicting us and giving us an eternal hope as we look at this passage from your word. May you 
Help me as I dwell on it. May all of us pay attention in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As a child, I am sure I was not alone in being fascinated by stories of horrendous injuries that were survived. Ripley's, believe it or not, was a great source of such stories. I remember going to one of their museums and seeing a plaster replica of the head of 25-year-old Phineas Gage. Phineas Gage worked on a railroad cut in Vermont in 1848. It cuts where they go through the rock. They have to cut out the rock. They blast it out. He was working, drilling and blasting there. And one of his jobs in the midst of blasting was to tamp the concrete into the hole, the hole that had been pre-drilled in the rock. But as he was tamping with a long iron bar about 43 inches long, about half again as long as a bat, 13 pounds, much more heavy than a bat, this long tapered iron bar as he was tamping, the dynamite exploded, thrusting that tamping iron up through his, his cheek, through his jaw, up through his upper mouth, the roof of his mouth, and coming out the side of his head at the top. Now that story was morbidly fascinating to me because Phineas Gage was put in a cart but got out of it and walked to the doctor and said, doctor, I've got a lot of work for you to do. He had brain dripping out of his head. They said he vomited in front of the doctor and about an ounce of further of brain came out as he vomited. Horrifying kind of thing that as a kid you look at and you go, oh. I remember the story as well of a, of a man who somehow, in the, I think it was the Civil War, had a, a wound that opened a hole in his side and you could look in his side and for years he had this wound that you could see his stomach pulsing. You could see the, and I thought, oh man. Phineas Gage lived another 15 years. There's an old daguerreotype, earliest form of photograph of the man. He was handsome, capable. Looked fine. Last eight years of his life, he went to Chile and worked as a stagecoach driver driving a team of eight horses on the Valparaiso-Santiago route. He, he survived for 15 years after that. This kind of thing is awful stuff, yet it's also gripping. We drive by the scene of an accident and our eyes are drawn. It's morbid, we know and yet we find it hard not to stare. Now that is the approach of some to the story of the crucifixion. Some speak about the crucifixion and say, look here, look at this, look at the suffering, don't look away, don't get squeamish. Consider the pains that Christ endured, the treatment that he had. Look at those hands. Look at those feet. Consider it. Think about it. How awful, how terrible, how painful. And these approaches to the crucifixion of Christ are emotionally powerful, but they are volitionally powerless. 
They provide a feeling of shock. They promote a sense of revulsion. They grip us, giving us a, a powerful emotional cathartic, like we're cleansed by it feeling. They make us weep. They shake our confidence, but then we leave. And like leaving the scene of an accident, we go back to our lives and the picture is dim in our minds. The emotions, the cathartic feeling has a half-life of an hour. We are shaken emotionally for a few hours, maybe a day, but there is little lasting change. We are not changed in what we do. There is a, a tradition in, in many Christian churches, including Protestant, Catholic, Reformed churches, uh, Orthodox churches, of a preaching form and a a meditational practice that concentrates on the physical suffering of Christ. The Anabaptist group, early Baptist group called the Moravians, who were the spiritual fathers of John and Charles Wesley, increasingly as they, as they preached and taught around the world because they sent missionaries around the world, practiced what they called a blood and wounds theology. It became the practice in the group for preachers to preach long sermons on the suffering of Christ using ever more graphic and ever more emotional terms calling listeners to consider the suffering of Jesus, to visualize in their minds his wounds, the blood flowing from his hands, his side, the crown of thorns, the stripes of the lashes, and to see in these sufferings and the spilled blood their need, their need for Christ, the cost of their salvation. Now, it was an emotionally powerful approach and it became increasingly prominent and eventually exaggerated and deadly to the Moravian church around the world. At that same impulse as at work in other churches, the crucifixes and the bleeding hearts and the stations of the cross and the stigmata of the saints in Roman Catholicism, the stigmata being the the idea, the, the claim that those who are great saints actually mirror Christ in having wounds in their hands that bleed and wounds in their side and wounds in their feet, that great saints bleed as Christ did, the stigmata. These are, in a sense, the same thing. Mel Gibson's The Passion of Christ is an illustration of this emotional approach it is, the movie is universally viewed as the most brutal depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus ever made. And Mel Gibson's goal was to bring people to honor Jesus by depicting in ever more graphic ways the depth of his suffering. So in the face of this human tendency to stare at scenes of immense suffering with an, an intense and morbid fascination to think that concentrating on the sufferings of Christ, the wounds, the blood, the mistreatment, that these things lead us to a good end in the face of this desire, this tendency to focus on these things. It's worth noting that Matthew leaves out the scourging of Christ at the hand of Pilate. He leaves out the mocking and the crown of thorns of Herod's courtyard, doesn't even take us to Herod's courtyard. 
he leaves out the spear thrust. He leaves out the nailing of hands and feet. And he actually deals with the crucifixion almost as though it's a peripheral matter to the fulfillment of prophecy in the casting of lots for Christ's garments. So here is the crucifixion as Matthew relates it. This is the blood and wounds theology of Matthew. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And when they had crucified him, now remember this is the centerpiece of history, the sacrifice, the death of the Son of God. This is the fulfillment of every prophecy, the realization of every blood sacrifice made by the people of God across thousands of years of history. Every bull, every lamb, every goat, every bird, every blood sacrifice ever made, every prophecy pointed to this moment and this death. At the dedication of the temple, Solomon, King Solomon, sacrificed 22,000 bulls and 120,000 lambs in seven days. It's 142,000 animals killed, 142,000 sacrificial victims in one week, 20,000 a day, 845 an hour, 14 bulls, lambs, goats put to death every minute, one every four seconds for a week. And each of them separately and all of them together, just a very minute, tiny little picture of the immensity of this moment we're looking at in Scripture. Because we are looking at the center of time, the focal point of eternity. Nothing compares. Nothing is more pivotal in the human race than this moment or in the, the workings of God in his Godhead and in eternity. Time and eternity hinge on this moment and this death, this death that was consummated before the foundations of the world were laid. Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world. Even before creation, this death was established. Yet Matthew gives this physical act six words. And when they had crucified him, and when they had crucified him. It is important that we look at the, at the cross and the death of Christ. It is important. It is important so that we do not fall into a theology of victory and glory in this world. It is important to recognize the suffering of Jesus, the cost he paid, so that we don't get jacked up on ourselves and start thinking, we're the people, we're the generation. Paul writes to the Corinthians, but we have this treasure of Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. In every way afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. 
always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. We are dying people and we carry about in our flesh this death. We are dying because we're united with Christ in his death. Glory comes in the future, but the death of Christ is a picture of what we are called to, and it is a very strong and needed antidote to the idea that that we're the people, this is the generation, this is the day, we're going to have it all. It's all good. Second, we must look at the cross so that we focus on the primary suffering of Christ and not on the secondary sufferings, all of which are part of the suffering. But it's very easy to focus on the blood, the gore, the whippings, the embarrassments, and to say, wow, that's the suffering of Christ. Those are not the primary sufferings of Christ. Matthew does not mention the physical mistreatment of Jesus prior to the crucifixion. Doesn't mention his being struck while blindfolded. Doesn't mention that they struck him and put a purple robe on him and said, tell us who hit you. It doesn't mention the crown of thorns forced on his head in Herod's courtyard. His treatment is mentioned by Mark, Luke, and John. Only Mark mentions that Jesus was also scourged by Pilate, so we know he was beaten and in the courtyard of Herod. We know he was also scourged by Pilate before being turned over for crucifixion. The pain and the physical debilitation caused by this treatment becomes apparent in Matthew, not by being recounted, but by a sort of what would seem incidental, a peripheral comment that Matthew makes. Matthew mentions in verse 32 that the Roman soldiers, as they made their way to Golgotha, pressed Simon of Cyrene into service to carry the cross of Christ. Now, normally, criminals would carry their own crosses, and of course, Christ would have, as a a full man, a carpenter, a man who was strong and capable, would have been capable of carrying his cross like any other person put to death on the cross. He would have been capable of doing that had he not been abused for those hours. Remember that Simon, this man of Cyrene, who's forced into service by the Romans and who is very clearly African, is named as the father of Rufus and Alexander by Mark, making clear that the family has fame subsequently within the church of Jesus Christ and is known. The suffering imposed by the crucifixion is well known. Most of us have have heard that it's a a prolonged suffocation with intense pain along the way. One person calls it the single most dreadful form of execution ever devised. Who knows, perhaps. But we cannot spend long thinking about this since the physical agony of Christ's death is such a small part of the price he paid and such a little portion of what Matthew writes. Remember that Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's interesting that it doesn't say he despised the pain of the cross. The pain of Calvary was almost incidental. He despised the shame of the cross. The shame was greater suffering than the pain. 
We see this in Christ's rejection of the wine that's mixed with myrrh or gall. Now, it's confusing, and I'm not going to walk you through it, but there are two times in the, in the crucifixion when Jesus is offered something to drink. Once before the cross and once from a sponge while he's on it. The sponge contains vinegar. The first drink that Jesus tasted is, is described as wine mixed with myrrh or gall. On the cross, it was a sponge with vinegar. Seems from historical sources that are independent of scripture that the wealthy women of Jerusalem would arrange for those who were going to undergo crucifixion to be given a mixture of myrrh and wine mixed. And that drink would dull pain and with myrrh have a soporific or sleep-inducing effect. But once Jesus tasted this and understood what it was, he refused it. He had said, I will not taste again the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom of heaven. He is not going to take strong drink for the dying, which is what it says in Proverbs. Give strong drink. He is not going to take strong drink. He, he has a cup to drink from his father and he is not going to get drunk so that it will be dulled. He is going to drink that cup to its dregs. So the physical suffering is not the centerpiece of Calvary. Scripture says Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. Shame was a greater force. Shame was a deeper burden on Calvary than physical pain. Christ experienced, of course, two forms of shame in his crucifixion, obvious if you think about it. First, there was the kind of physical shame of the mocking or the external shame of the mocking and the nakedness, being paraded in purple robes, being put up on the cross, his clothes removed, gambled away. Yet in the end, this is only a little more painful than the physical suffering, being mocked, being challenged to come down from the cross if he's the son of God, being crowned with these uh, headpiece of thorns, these things are painful, but they are not the heart of Christ's suffering. And then there is the shame that is more intense and the one place outside where we're gonna end up where Jesus does voice an objection and that is the shame of being treated as a criminal, dying as a criminal. And you may say, where does Christ object to this? Well, Jesus at his capture by the the mob on the Mount of Olives, asked them, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place in order that the scriptures of the prophets would be fulfilled. Clearly scriptures say that Christ would suffer by being placed on a tree. A shameful manner, cursed is he who is hung on a tree. Shameful manner of death reserved for criminals. Isaiah says the Messiah will die and his grave will be assigned with wicked men. And that is a shame that Christ says, why are you doing this? There is shame in Calvary in dying as a criminal on a tree, as a rebel, but of course, this is not the deepest suffering of Calvary, nor is it the suffering that makes Jesus the substitute for us, that makes him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And they say, Jesus dies under the wrath of the Father, substituting his life for yours. He takes the suffering that is due you, and by his paying the price, you are forgiven. His righteousness is granted to you by the Father, imputed to you. Your sins are imputed to him. It's an exchange. His righteousness, perfect, given you. Your sins, entirely, all of them, laid on him. But if Jesus suffering in these ways we've mentioned, shame, physical suffering, physical abuse, if that was sufficient to relieve us of our sin, well then we could do it ourselves, couldn't we? You know, if you told me that, David, if you die a suffering death, you'll go to heaven, I'd say, okay, do it right now. Many Muslims die being assured that they'll go to heaven if they suffer as martyrs in battle. People are willing. How many of you men would be willing to die if that would relieve you of the guilt of your sins, right? Uh, Many of our women would as well. And while physical suffering and death are, in some respects, preferable to public humiliation, many of us would suffer shame to gain eternal life. And in fact, if you're going to enter eternal life, you must suffer shame. But your suffering shame is not the shame of your sin. Jesus says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You must embrace the same shame. You must endure it. You must say, I am one with Christ, carrying about in your body the death of Christ, as Paul said in Corinthians. You can't say, no, I'm not willing to bear shame, but you are not saved by your bearing shame. Just as you must carry the cross in your body, suffer in your flesh, and are not saved by it, so you must suffer in your spirit the shame of the cross, but you are not saved by that. There's something deeper that only Christ could do. If we are to look fully into this, into this wound, into this, this desperate, desperate sight of Calvary, desperate for us, into this, this immensity, this thing that is beyond our ability to imagine. If we're going to plumb the depths of it, we don't look at the physical price or even the emotional. We look at about the ninth hour is when we pay attention. Scripture says that at about the ninth hour, darkness fell on the land, enveloping the earth. 
It was the supernatural darkness of a world killing its only light. In the darkness of that ninth hour, we read Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the symphony that swells towards a climax of the suffering of Christ on this day of his crucifixion, this is that climax. The greatest price, the sole point at which Christ cries out, at which Christ objects, at which his pain overcomes his silence. This is the wound of Calvary. This is the deadly wound, the one that you can never pay. This is the price of your salvation being paid here in blood. It's not the shame. It's not the physical pain. It is the sin which Jesus bears from you, which brings about separation from God so that he is forsaken by his father. The pain The suffering is that his father, at this point in his life, turns his back on his son. And Jesus is separated from his father. Why this abandonment? Because the son has become sin, encompassing within himself the darkness of mankind. In himself, taking our evil deeds, our evil thoughts, our points of pride, our murders, our blasphemies, our lusts. Paul writes to the Corinthians, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin, but he that is God made him sin on your behalf. Your sin atoned for. Your sin paid for, removed. The wrath of God at sin, using technical terms, propitiated, satisfied, extinguished. And in the darkness of this hour, our darkness ends and the light of God is restored to human life. So if you want to look at the bleeding, beating heart of Christ's suffering, listen to this word. Why have you forsaken me, forsaken by the Father? Because he has become us, taking on our sin, dying our death, receiving the wrath of the Father to us. And here we have the center and the cost and the pain of Calvary, the one thing that makes Christ cry out in the darkness, forsaken. He and the Father are separated now. As he suffers and hangs on the cross, there is an ocean of sin between him and the Father. Your sin, my sin, he bears it. Note how different this moment is from other great moments of of challenge or trial that we're told about in Scripture in the life of Christ. When he was born, when he first stepped across the divide between heaven and earth and came into the womb of a baby and came out and was born. God sent angels to sing in the hillsides. He sent 
kings, magi from the east, to bow down and worship and to bring them. There were hordes of angels, multitudes of the heavenly armies, the host of heavens, singing to God, praising him in front of the shepherds. God, the Father, making clear, this is my son. And when his ministry was in its initial days, when he went to have John's baptism of repentance, he who had done no sin received the baptism of a sinner in order to fulfill all righteousness. The Holy Spirit, after he was baptized and took on himself that baptism, which was for repentance, which was impossible for him because he had nothing to repent of, but he did it. And when that moment was over, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. A voice was heard from heaven saying, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And immediately following that statement by God, you are my son, I am well pleased with you. That statement ringing in Christ's ears, Jesus went into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days. And at the end of those days, he was tempted by Satan who you recall three times said, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, two of the three times, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, prove it. But he was fortified by the father who said to him, you are my son. He suffered, but God was with him beforehand and immediately after it was over, we're told that Satan disappeared and angels came and tended Christ. Again, later in the... In the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, these are the ones we know. There are probably others we don't know. At the Mount of Transfiguration, he's making his way finally to Jerusalem for the last time. On his way to Calvary. Peter, James, and John attend to him on a mountaintop. On on that mountaintop, he's transfigured. Light fills him. He's joined by Elijah and Moses who speak with him. Now on that mountaintop, Peter and James and John are are just confused and frankly ignorant and and I think we'd have to say sinfully so. But Peter in his boldness and confusion and kind of sinful inability to accept what Jesus has been telling him all along the way, he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here with you. Shall we make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, tabernacle was a place of worshiping God. It was the tent where God was worshiped. And so what Peter has said is, shall we worship you? Shall we make a tabernacle? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While Peter is still speaking in this way that causes Christ to be no higher than Moses and Elijah, A bright cloud from heaven overshadowed them and a voice, behold, out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces terrified. God will not have his son stand equal to Moses or Elijah. Immediately, Peter says, shall we make a tabernacle for you and Moses and Elijah? God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Here on the cross, the crowd hears Jesus cry, 
Eli, Eli, from the Eloi, from Elohim. It's a shortened form of my God. My God, my God. Eli, Eli, Lamai, Sabachthani. The crowd hears it and some of the men say, hey, look, he's calling for Elijah. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. He is not calling for Elijah. Nor is he calling to be saved. He is crying out to his father. He is the son of God. He does not need Elijah. He has taken on human flesh for this purpose. He now dies to that end, forsaken by the father. And in the pain of that forsakenness, that separation, the only time in eternity that the son is not one with the father in this way, he cries out. He is under the dominion of sin. He is under the power of death and Hades. He is submitting and alone, not protected, not shielded. God does not respond saying, this is my son. Listen to him. At this point when he's compared with Elijah, Elijah is even given precedence over him. He is alone, the man, the son of God. Now the day is coming when death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. And that day is still ahead of us. But this day is the day of Hades and death. They triumph. They have their way. Christ suffers under their power, absorbing their blow for us, for you, for me. So that we will never be forsaken in life or death. Jesus dies forsaken by his father. He is forsaken. They blaspheme him. Oh, if you're the son of God, come down. Oh, if God really loves you, they're blaspheming him and his father. But at this moment, God says nothing. God permits it. He is abandoned. He could, he said the night before, he could call on 12 legions of angels, 72,000 angels down from heaven to preserve him. He said that when Peter took his sword and cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Do you not know I could call to heaven and immediately have 76, 12 legions of angels at my disposal? He does not do it. He is abandoned, forsaken by the Father because he has become sin. Now, the beauty of this is because Christ was forsaken and abandoned. You who confess your sins to him in faith, you who look to him as your savior, you will never be forsaken, never. Christ was forsaken by God even in his righteous death. And then the first martyr, Stephen, is being put to death because of his naming Christ and standing for him. And he looks up into heaven and his face glows like that of an angel, the scriptures say. 
And Jesus says, look, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you to the end, he says. This is his promise. Do you not love Jesus? Do you not look at this great Savior and go, what love? Will you not say, Father, give me Jesus? Forsaken so that you might never be forsaken. Coming under the power of death in Hades so that he can throw them into the pit of fire and you might never taste them. How will you escape if you ignore so great a salvation? How will you find hope if you do not worship Jesus? How can you and I be embarrassed of this great Savior and go around mumbling about him and pretending we don't know him and sinning as though it's nothing to us what he did for us. He was not ashamed to take your sin. He bore it. We must love him. We must go to him in faith and say, Jesus, forgive me. I love you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, his glory, his death. Father, we thank you that he was willing and did not cry out at any of the costs of Calvary, save the one that was the precious cost of our lives, the cost of our sin. And even then, not rebelling against that, but mourning the separation between himself and you. I pray, Father, that there'll be no one here this morning who thinks lightly of Jesus. Impress upon us the price he paid and the love that he had so that we are saved, Father, and we gain this gift of eternal life that he gave his life to buy for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.